Can we stand and welcome Pastor Jim LaFoon? Thank you very much. I always just love coming back to South Africa. Joburg was the first city in Africa I visited. Uh, that was in the 1990s. Um, I've been here many, many times since. I don't know, 15, 16, I have no idea. And um, I always love coming back here um, with Pastor Roger and his family and Pastor Simon and his family. I, I prayed over Simon and Lindy. Um, in the first service, and um, I prayed over them publicly because a lot of what was said, your senior pastor was to the church, and you could even put that pod, you could even put that tape right on the uh, website if you wanted. I spoke a lot about the country and about the church, so I'm just so blessed to be here. I discovered many things in the city, one being Nando's, and um, I've been faithful to Nando's ever since. I promise you. I've, I've eaten it in London, I've eaten in New Zealand, I've eaten in Dubai, but it's always better in Africa. That's what I tell you right now. And so I've eaten it three times since I've been here. I've renewed my covenant with Nando's every time. But you will know I've, I've really cut down on my calories. I used to eat a whole Nando's chicken when I first came. I'm down to a half. There you go. Okay. I want to prophesy over a couple um, before, I, before I preach. I want um, Pastor Siv... I don't know if I can pronounce your full name, and Marcia to come up, please. There you are. Stop right there. Let me have your hands. Come on. Here, here we go. How many children do you have again? Two. All right, come up. want you to know, says the Lord, son and daughter, I'm bringing you up to a whole new level. Uh, there's going to come a, a new level of anointing and grace that marks your lives. And, and I brought you up here because I am going to elevate you, says the Lord. I'll tell you why. Elevate the humble. It's not hard to elevate you. I'm going to elevate you to new anointing, new grace, and new leadership. And as I do that, says the Lord, I'm going to expand your platform. And I want you to know, says the Lord, uh, before I'm done with the two of you as a couple, you're not just going to leave your imprint, says the Lord, on this church and on this city. You're going to leave your imprint on other churches, other cities, and in the years and decades to come on this nation. Uh, my spirit in my hand... Um, are going to be on you. Uh, son, you're a very, very talented young man, um, in the natural as well. You could have done anything. Talent runs deep in your family. You've always had a way with words. You have a family of incredible leaders. Um, your dad was multiply talented man, just multiply talented. Um, things tried to hem him and tried to clip him, but talented he was. Um, you're different as a kid. You always grew up with a sense of destiny. Something always kept you even kept you from trouble. I might add you were real good at talking your way out of trouble, says the Lord, when you got into it. No one could ever imagine you being in trouble. Even teachers thought it must have been his friends. It couldn't have been him. You had always just had a way, like even if you're caught, you were never caught. But humor aside, uh, you've always been different. You marched to a different drum, and you were like an old man by the time you were 10. You thought differently, felt differently. You were never going to waste your life. You've always had a heart for, you always had a hand for money too. You'd save it. You'd get it. You wouldn't want to spend it. And you're always interested in things. Languages, news, thoughts, music. 
You're kind of like a, a secret little renaissance man. You have so many interests, so many thoughts, and you love this country. In fact, even when you were in college, two paths poured out before you. The call of ministry and the call of a nation. You could have gone, been a great lawyer, risen in politics, moved the nation. When you were young, you wondered about that. You always felt that somehow I'm different. Somehow I can't live with lesser things. Like toys never really interested you. Um, games, toys. Um, your wife almost has to make you have hobbies. Um, you're very focused. You, you preach a lot about needing a day off. You just don't always like them. Your mind is like always churning and burning and yearning. And your wife is your equal in all things. She's deeply bright, deeply articulate. She comes from a long line of brilliant women. In fact, both sides of her family, women of great accomplishment. Her mind is always searching, and you knew even if you wanted to get over on her, it would be impossible. She is deeply discerning, and she can make you laugh even on your grimmest days. It says in the book of Proverbs that the righteous woman laughs in the face of adversity, and she will laugh the laugh of faith. She's not an easy believer either. She is no pushover. And she is, she is like a voice of discernment in your life. I've made you a big-hearted man. You can love people others hate. It's almost like natural for you. Forgiveness, you hardly have to work out. Your wife, however, is very discerning. And you learn when she warns you, listen. There is an unusual, uncanny sense of, of discernment in her. And you can trust her. And daughter, I want you to know I have given you a gift of discernment. And it will grow. And I will use you. And like your husband, you're very articulate. And you're going to have a unique writing gift. Um, writing helps you. Writing your way out of thought processes helps you. Um, when, you're, when you're pulled and pushed, says the Lord, to write really helps you. Some people need space to think. You need space to write and write out your thoughts and look at them. They give a tremendous communication gift in writing. That's also in your family line, I might add. Uh, there's been some interesting, like, poetic-type, writing-type people that come out of your family line, unusual uh, with words. And, and you also have seen death close up and personal. Uh, death robbed your family. It, it stalked your family and killed off those before their time. And as a little girl, three times death ripped the bottom out of your feet. There were, there were a, a, a series of funerals that tore you as a little girl and left you speechless and depressed and internalized your personality. It robbed you, hurt you. In fact, there was a season as a little girl where you were wordless and they worried. Like you couldn't even talk anymore. You'd been quite a chatterbox. But that trauma affected you. A sudden death shifted family and your fortunes. But I want you to know, I've broken the spirit of death over you. From time to time, when certain feelings rise up in you, that you feel that old claw. And sometimes worries come in the night if your husband's on a trip. You knew what it was to be see sudden death through accident. But I want you to know, I've placed my holy hedge around the two of you. And I have hedged you up for my purposes. And my anointing is going to grow 
on the two of you, and it will express itself sooner than you think um, in ways that I've not yet whispered to you. And you are a man who hears me. You don't talk about it much. You've heard me from your earliest days of salvation. You've heard me before you knew what it was to be saved. You can look back now and know I impacted you, even as a child, that you knew what it was to be saved from death listening to my spirit. I've, I kept you even as a child. And you can look back now and realize that the hand of the Lord was on me. Even at night, I would be busy in your mind. I want you to know I'm going to protect you. My hand is going to be on both your children. What are the names and ages of your children? Bio 6 and Quivis 3. Boys, girls? Daughter of Bio. Okay. Hands on both, but I want you to know I'm putting a special protective hand on your second child. The enemies hit him a couple of times in unique ways. But I want you to know he's going to grow very strong. And he's going to grow with tremendous athletic genes. In fact, progeny level athletic genes. He is going to be so strong and so fast, it will be unusual. He'll be strong in his will as well. But I'm going to keep him and protect him, and I'm going to hang his star athletically. But he'll choose to follow me and walk away from that into his destiny by the time he reaches the age of 21. My hand will be on your daughter, very prophetic, very sensitive, very tender, in music will flow from her lips before I'm done with it. Already you see her sway at tunes and walk in words. She's always seemed to listen to things you could not hear. It's because my spirit has been on her unusually, just as I promised you. In these two children, I'm repaying you for loss you both suffered in an earlier day. I told you, you'd see them again, not just in heaven, in these two children. Now, Lord, I seal this word. See if the Holy Spirit spoke to me in the first service. This is very, very hard for me to do. This is my greatest possession. I don't mean relationally. It's my Bible. My Bible, I've used this last decade. Preached all over the world with this Bible. Preached out of open Bible prophetically and noted, and the Holy Spirit spoke to me in the first service, I was to give you this Bible. And I'm giving you this Bible because the Word of God is going to, take both hands on it, is going to dwell in you like a fire. And a spirit of revelation from this Bible will come out of you. And may this word anchor you in the storms of leadership. May this word boil up in you. May the Holy Spirit be in you like he has been in me as I've read this word. May revelation search you out. And not just this Bible, may you treasure the written word of God all the days of your life. May his word be your comfort. May his word judge what you think the Spirit is saying. May you be a man so rich in the word, so deep in the word, so impacted by the word that every word you speak will be, as it were, from the oracular voice of God. May the deepest spirit of revelation you've ever known come upon you. May the Bible open up to you. May you exegete with accuracy, apply with anointing. May you be known as a man strong in the word, strong in spirit. For does not the scripture say it is an error to know both the word and the spirit? You must know both, not one or the other. And so I will give you an unusual gift of revelation. And my word will anchor you in the storms. 
and this word will burn in your heart. And so, my brother, give you this Bible. May the anointing of God go with it. Thank you, sir. When I told my wife I was giving my Bible away, she couldn't believe it. I kissed my Bible. I, I grew up in a home, so you can understand me before we turn in this word, where the Bible was exalted. My mom and dad, um, my dad grew up very poor in the hills, in a, in a tribal family, literally with blood feuds and violence. His dad died in his arms when he was 16. Um, violent blood feuds. And my mama got saved 10 years before him. He'd take her to church and sit out and, and drink while he waited for her to come back and smoke cigars. God radically saved him at 28. Right before he got saved, I'm sitting by my dad at five with a can of beer in my hand. He was radically saved and followed God all the days of his life. And we lived among the poor in the gang area is where we pastored. Our church was multi-ethnic in a day when that wasn't even understood. We fed the homeless, took people into our home, around our table. My parents were the best Christians I have ever known. I've never seen a better marriage. He'd cry talking about my mom in his 70s. The most beautiful thing I see every morning, son, is your mother's face. He was a man of deep violence and war, radically transformed by Christ. And they loved the Bible. We read the Bible every night around the table. We always read the word and prayed. I had to read the Bible every day. My parents only said two things around child rearing, the Bible and spank them. That's all they knew in those days. <laughs> I got both aplenty. And, but the Bible in our home could never be put on the ground. Nothing could ever be put on top of it. Top of it. That my parents reverenced the Bible. And so my wife knows I've never gotten rid of a Bible. She knows I won't even throw them away. I can't bring myself to do it, so we have lots of Bibles. I stacks of my Bibles and my journals. So th this Word of God, let me tell you right now, will save your life. The Word of God judges everything I do, I say. If something the Holy Spirit tells me is against the Bible, it's not from God. This Word will save you, transform you, and you can never get enough of it on Sunday to change you. Don't kid yourself. That's not like you can eat one meal a day and be healthy. Lord, help us with this word. Amen. I'm going to share a message that God birthed in my heart on this trip. Things I will say today are as fresh as last night before I had dinner with Roger and Nicola. Um, I'm going to entitle this message, Spiritual Identity Theft. Uh, we live in a, a world where people are always worried about identity theft. People kind of stealing your virtual, your identity, and robbing your bank accounts and all. There's a far more devastating form of spiritual identity theft. It's when we allow the enemy to reduce us to the identity of our first birth and lose the new identity in Christ of our new birth. I think the greatest crisis facing the church in America right now is spiritual identity theft. As more and more politicians play identity politics. I think the great crisis facing the South African church is spiritual identity theft. 
And I'm going to break this message into two very simple parts. The Lord visited me when I got to South Africa in a powerful vision, which I shared at the Bill Conference. So I'm going to take like five minutes and share that vision. And then I'm going to share with you the problem I see that we face, whether we're in America or South Africa, two nations that the eyes of the world stay on. You think, well, eyes of the world on South Africa, you better believe it. This nation's famous. People all around the world are watching to see if it'll really happen. I remember back in the 90s when, I don't know if I'd call them prophets or not, they said they were, all prophesied South Africa was going to be destroyed in blood and fire. God never said that. Look where you are. And the eyes of the world have been kind of watching, trying to figure this out ever since. Americans think about it all the time. You were blessed by God at a time when you should have been destroyed with just a God-touched leader. Man, it should have been filled with hate and bitterness, Mandela. He's God-touched. And so when I arrived here, and I always love coming here, not just Nando's, I also love your big prawns. Those are great, too. <laughs> and I, I, mean, I love some spiritual things like Biltong. I like that also. Anyway, now, so I got, and we were in Cape Town having our Bill Conference, and how many of you know God did some real good work in, in Cape Town? My good gracious. I mean, some, he did some of his most beautiful creative work there, I have to say. I look in Cape Town and I go, where I live is ugly compared to there. It's just, I'm oceans, it's beautiful. And so the second night there, I was up late. You go, you're spiritual. No, I was jet lagged. And I was up late praying, which is kind of my habit wherever I am. And it was pitch black. And we happened to be at a guest house so I could see the ocean across the street. And some of the other sides of the Cape, the mountainous area there. And to my left, there was a mountain. And I'll never forget it as long as I live. It was like the sky was painted. And over to the left, or the top of this mountain, the sun began to rise. I don't know if I can describe it to you adequately. I'm going to try because it's important. It was sun up at midnight. Now, we know midnight really is the new day, and I don't know if it was really midnight. It was late, whatever time it was. But what struck me at the moment, was the sun was burning red. I don't mean like red, I mean fire red. And it began to peak over the top of the mountain. I realized, dear guys, it's like dawn. It's like, what is this? I could not comprehend it. And as the sun came up, the sky grew red. It was like God took a paintbrush and began to paint the sky. And as it began to rise, I looked back and I saw young South Africans. There were ranks of them, like the first line was as far as my eye could see. And there were, I can't count the ranks that were behind them. I know now every rank was a teeny bit shorter than the first one. And I felt like that must be different ages. Maybe the oldest would have been like up in the 20s, but it went all the way down into very young children. And they rose like a, like a deck of cards shuffling out. And as they rose, there's this whispering and this mutter. It's, it's the new dawn. It's, like, it's a new day. And there was nothing political. There was no human-like manipulation. 
in response to what they saw, they rose as far as I could see. And the sun began to go bright, a brightness that, like, I close my eyes in talking about it now. And it grew so bright, they, they finally took out these, like, some type of um, sunglasses. We, we recently had a big eclipse, as you know, and, and where we live was one of the places where you could see it, and people drove for miles to see it. I happened to be in the airport, and everyone was passing around these special glasses with, like, this kind of dark uh, material like you could look through. And um, th- they had to, and all of a sudden, as it came, the sun began to heat up, and I, I saw out over South Africa these wounds, hurts, wounds. Some had already corrupted and gotten infected. And all of a sudden, burning rays from the sun came. As you know, there are certain places in the world of course, when you're redheaded like me, you've only got two colors, white and bright red. I don't tan. But there's certain places where you can burn. And all of a sudden, burning like laser came out of that thing and began, what's the right word? It began to cauterize the pain. Cauterize, in other words, through burning heel, basically. It, it hit the corruption and just... It just cleansed it off. But there was a burning. Things were burning, and I was watching all this like I knew is the Lord, but I did not know what it meant. And the Bible says the prophets of old sought diligently to understand the timing of what they were seeing and who was it for. And when they sought, God answered. And many times people share prophetic visions without seeking diligently what it means and who it's for. So I I wasn't going to say anything. I didn't know what to do with it. And the next day as I woke up, I began to ponder it. I pondered red sky, and I was reminded studying. Jesus said, he replied, when evening comes, you say, it's fair weather. The sky is red. In the morning today, it'll be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you can't interpret the signs of the time. Then instead, I found that little ditty that I'd heard growing up. Red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky at morning, sailors take warning. In the patterns of the weather world, when you get a big red sun or red sky, they're saying storms are coming. Good thing about storms is they bring lots of rain. God be praised. I think it was significant that it happened right there in drought-ridden Cape Town. Now watch this. As I pondered this, let me tell you by the Spirit, there is another new day rising for South Africa. And yes, there are storms, but they're not terminal storms. They're not fatal storms. And on the heels of these storms, the rain of blessing will come. I want to go on to say that as you come into this stormy season, you're going to begin to feel like, is our nation going to fracture? Is this like it? And you're going to have great temptation to be afraid. Fear not, it will not be. God loves this nation more than you do. I'm going to go on deeper in this passage and tell you, in the end, the church, not E-N, but the church of this nation, God lovers and families all over, you are the tectonic plates. And much of that storm you're going to feel in the church. But as the Spirit of God ties you together and holds you together, 
The church as the pillar and ground of the truth in society will hold this society to the new dawn of this nation's promise. I personally believe South Africa has been uniquely chosen by God to exemplify something in the world. And that means God's jealous over it. And that means he watches over it. And that means he will deal. You may say, why does it take God so long to deal with corruption? You know what he told me? He said this. He said, you tell my people I can deal with it quickly, but I want to make them as sick of it as I am before I deal with it or they'll want it back. And God, by his spirit, it does not matter. Indian South African, colored South African, black South African, white South African, he will have his way with this nation. Now, as I pondered this, I'm just kind of living this vision. I'm going to go right into the message. I, the passage that hit me was Malachi 4. It starts out by saying there's a day coming. It'll burn like a furnace. The arrogant and evildoers will be like stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord. In fact, I'm going to burn so deep, not a root or a branch will be left. What's God saying? I'm not just going to deal with the fruit of corruption the fruit of economic injustice. I'm not just going to deal with the fruit because if I only deal with the fruit, the root will produce it. I'm going to go down beneath the surface of the culture and touch the attitudes and the things that continue to manifest that. I'm going to reduce them. But for you who revere my name, for my church, for those who fear me and love me, the son, and that's not like Son, it may be a picture of Jesus, but it's S-U-N, the Son, in English. The Son of Righteousness is going to rise. So the same Son that heals through cauterizing and burning, the same Son will rise with healing. And this is interesting. The word healing here in the original language speaks of cure, health, remedy, restoration, deliverance. So God says, my son is going to rise on South Africa. Yes, there will be healing miracles. Yes, there will be deliverance. But there will also be cures and remedies and health. I told the first service that I feel by the Holy Spirit, over, as we go in, out of this decade into the next decade, there will come a cure and a remedy out of South Africa that will rivet the attention of the world. That as God rides down his sun on this nation, as it shines out on this nation, there will be cures and remedies here that will grab the attention of the world. Now, the Bible says, when my, the rays of my sun begin to hit my people and deliver them and touch them and cure them, this is going to be the reaction. The ESV says, and I like it better than the NIV in this place, it says, you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Now, the word stall here is an interesting word. It could be a pen. It could be a stable. It also has the word fattening in there. It can be like a holding pen where you're fattening up cattle to slaughter them. And so God says, when my spirit comes, it's going to bring deliverance to my people, and those things that have been holding them, pinning them, stalling them, corralling them, are going to be gone, and they're going to come out. They're going to frolic like a calf. They're going to leap, 
They're going to trample on the wicked, not people, but on unrighteousness. There'll be ashes under the sole of their feet when I act. Now, when we think about what holds us, okay, how many of you know sin holds us? Okay, we know that. Sin, um, addictions, perversions. Okay, that's the easy part. There are other things that hold us. There are other things that pin us that are far harder to recognize because they're not necessarily evil. In fact, they're natural. They're good. Maybe they're not best. And I feel, when I look at my own country, and when I look at South Africa and other places, I feel the thing that is so critical, and I hear the Holy Spirit putting his finger on it, and I've articulated it, not knowing what I was doing three or four times now in America, but it wasn't until I sat last night that I saw it. I think the thing holding back the church is what I'm going to call spiritual identity theft. The enemy, by his very nature, how many of you know, is a thief. He'll rob your health, rob your marriage, rob your children, rob your finances. He's a liar and a thief, and he wants to murder you. As I've pondered this, this is the best way I can say it. In reality, I believe this identity theft is the greatest crisis facing the South African church. Every ethnicity. And God's coming after America also. And here's what I mean. How many of you know we all have dual identities? We have our natural identity. I am a plump, balding, aging, white American, still very handsome and humble citizen of the United States. Now, how many of you know that is a natural identity? I was born into that. I was raised that. That's my identity. My country's a mess. I love it. I pray for it. But that is the identity of my first birth. But I have another identity that... I was born again, like by far the majority of you, I was born again, I'm now the son of God, the brother of Jesus, and I am now a Christian. And both identities are legitimate, but only one can ultimately define my life. And now we're gonna look at this in scripture and this becomes very critical. Which identity in the end defines you is the identity that becomes your God. And it's very, very important when I look at what God is doing on the earth. Every day I find it more and more challenging, am I going to think like a white man or like a Christian man? Ho, ho, ho. Pastor Brett Fuller, my dear African-American friend, one of my lifetime covenant friends, one of the most influential pastors in the NFL in America. He grew up with a cross burning in his yard, sledgehammer smashing his cars to pieces. First young African-American to integrate, beaten, cursed. It is the greatest reconcile I've ever seen. And I've watched him make sacrifice after sacrifice. He's chosen to think like a Christian. My, my. What does this mean? How does this happen? 
In our every nation family, this is something we have to deal with in many nations. We have, we have Catholic Protestant churches in Belfast. We have multi-ethnic churches in India. This is, we face this. We know there's a mandate in Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. He's our peace. He's destroyed the barrier. He's absorbed in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was what? To have multi-ethnic churches. Oh, no, 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 no. Something far deeper than that. To have one new humanity. I love every tribe, tongue, and nation. I grew up in multi-ethnic Christianity. I've never been in an all-white church. I'm not saying they're bad. I just can't imagine being in one. It'd be boring. I mean, I, this is the only thing I know. I've pastored a multi-ethnic church, 70% African-American, in a cradle of bigotry and hatred. This is all I know. It's, I've given my life for this dream. But I'm beginning to realize that God has a dream not just to bring every tribe, tongue, and nation, but there's something else. And even in the Bible, it was a mess. I mean, God chose the most broken, pain-filled, ethnocentric, bigoted people in the world to change the world, the Jews. You're saying you're slamming. No, I'm not. No, it's just true. They hated Gentiles. They had been ravished, broken, ethnically cleansed, slaughtered. Today, they have no tribal identity because it was eradicated and massacred. They were reduced to nothing, kept from their own temple for 2,000 years. Hated, hounded, and still are. And God chose them to reach us, and they didn't like us. They didn't want to reach you and I, unless you're Jewish, and probably a few people are. My wife, she's part Jewish herself. They didn't want to reach us. How could you blame them? So all of a sudden, God tricked him. He got him drunk on Pentecost. See, God has to get his drunk to do some of the things he wants to do. A lot of times you go to church, you get drunk, and you go home and get sober and realize what's happened. How would I promise to tithe? Why did I say that? So they got all drunk at church and woke up with 50 or 60 different ethnicities. Oh, my God, how did all these people come to our church? By Acts 6, they're in a massive ethnic tension because the Jewish widows are eating before the rest of the ethnicities. They say, you bigots, you're feeding the Jews first. Peter got so worn down with it, and the brothers, they had to get seven of the most anointed men just to figure out how to feed the widows. I mean, the time to get to Acts 10, 15 through 16, Peter, the great apostle, is being sent to the Gentiles. I might add tricked into going to the Gentiles. Remember that big thing, the sheet comes down? My God, it's filled with pork ribs, big giant prawns, I'm sure, pork belly, all the things for a healthy body. He said, Peter, take, eat. Peter goes, no, I'm holy. That's debatable. Came down again, eat. No, I'm holy. Peter's the only man in the Bible to be rebuked by the whole Trinity. God said, shut up, listen to my son. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. The Holy Spirit said, shut up, that's clean. Three times, Jose said, listen to me, that's clean. And for the rest of your life, you better never call unclean what I say. He's going to go, okay, Lord. He's real hungry. God says, oh, by the way, there's a little knock coming at your door. Go with them, no questions asked. It's a Roman soldier. They've been crucifying Jews for a century. Pompey has slaughtered them a hundred years before in Romanized ten cities. It's a nightmare at the door. My master had a vision of your God. Come and help us. 
Don't call unclean what I call clean. Peter goes, swearing to himself, I'll never preach to them. He gets there. He walks in the door. Who, who might be Cornelius' friends? Guess who? All kinds of Roman centurions and soldiers. Did they have their wives with them? They weren't allowed to marry. He walked into a little old barracks. He goes, first words go, now, now I know that maybe God does love every nation. He's debating whether he should preach to him, and he begins to talk, and all of a sudden they're filled with the Spirit and begin to pray in tongues. Only time it happened, not even trusting Christ yet. Why? God realized, I gotta give them tongues first or they'll never baptize them. Peter got back home and said, did you baptize them dang Gentiles? I had to, they prayed in tongues. So Peter is reluctantly reaching out to the world. Listen, it got so bad in Antioch that when some of the Christians from Jerusalem came down who were still biased, Peter segregated himself from his Gentile brothers and sisters. Barnabas wouldn't eat. Like, what would that be if you're at a church and Roger, your beloved, been the senior leader here for years, and now Simon, and he excluded himself from everyone that wasn't his ethnicity. It got so bad, Paul, pu Paul publicly rebuked him for being a bigot and a hypocrite in church. You talk about tension? This is no easy matter. If it's so hard, what do we do? 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says this. We're all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free. We're all given one spirit. I mean, you know, Paul's words on slavery were set him free as your brother, but that was working its way out of the culture. Rome, they were half slaves in the city. Slaves and masters going to the same church. Ethnicities who hated one another with one thing in common, they all hated Romans. In church together. Paul said the Holy Spirit made it possible, but if you don't keep drinking of that Holy Spirit, if you don't stay filled with that Spirit, if you don't stay slightly intoxicated with God, you can't walk this out. It's just too hard if you don't stay in the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 10.32, this is a radical verse. The church fathers, and I might add, church fathers were not all white. Some of the smartest and best of them were African, northern African, brilliant. They took this passage, do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God. And this is what they preached. They're Jews, there's every ethnicity, and there's the church. Because in Jesus, he's brought a brand new ethnicity to the world. A brand new humanity, made up of every tongue, tribe, and nation, not rejecting their natural identity, but somehow they've risen up to a Christian identity, and they will mirror in unity what God does on the earth. Then Paul says this crazy thing in Galatians 3.28. I used to have trouble understanding it. There is neither Jew or Greek. What? Yes, there is. There's neither slave nor free. Well, yes, there is. There's neither male nor female. You wait a minute. Yes, there is. So you're all one in Christ, Jesus. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that I'm not Scotch, Irish, English, French, Welsh, Potawatomi, and Cherokee, and who else knows what. I got mostly European descent. It doesn't mean I don't have an ethnicity or ethnicities. It doesn't mean I'm not Caucasian. I'm really real handsome and redheaded. That's another story, though. It does not mean that I don't have a demographic. I went to college. That doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean I don't have a gender. I am a male. What it means is my highest point 
of identity is not my gender, not my ethnicity, not my demography, it is my Christianity. And Jesus defines me. And I will say this, I don't vote as a white man, think as a white man, talk as a white man. I am a Christian before I am a white man. Now, that will tear at your identity. And this is the issue God is touching in the American church. If more and more Americans are tempted, if they're not careful, to identify with their ethnicity. Well, how do I know what I'm identifying with? You won't know to the ballot box. You won't know to your private conversation. You won't know to your way from church. And let me close with two little models for you. Let me talk about two people who faced identity crisis in the Bible in ways we can't even understand. One was Paul, one was Jesus. Paul, you can read it later in Philippians 3, 5 through 8. I'll skim it, then comment. Jesus, he says, listen, I was the Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was the best educated young Jew in the world. I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. I was a Pharisee's Pharisee. I was perfectly righteous. I persecuted the church. I was the Jewish boy of the year. But when I met this Jesus, it became trash to me. When I met this Jesus, he defined me. You think you got pain? Paul spent the rest of his life reaching the people that had crucified and murdered his people. He finally said in Rome, I wish God would curse me and damn me and instead save my people. That's tough. Let's talk about the greatest identity shift in the world. Hear this and let the Holy Spirit speak. Philippians 2.5, Paul says, in your relationships with another, let me give you a new mindset. Let me give you a new attitude. In fact, let me give you a new identity. I just want you to be like Jesus. How many of you want to be like Jesus? Raise your hand. Oh, that's, those are deadly words. <laughs> Who being in the very nature of God. How many of you know Jesus was fully us, fully God? In the very nature he was God. Yet he did not consider equality with God something to be held on to and grasp. That means for Jesus to save you and I, even though he was fully God, he could not grasp his God identity. He couldn't hold on to the identity in which he had no pain, no hurt, no temptation, never knew what it was to sweat, to ache, to bury a stepdad, to be rejected by his brothers and sisters, for his mom to think he was crazy, for the ethnicity he identified with to spurn him and murder him. He wouldn't hold on to it. He didn't have to die. The commander of the angels said, their 12 legions will rescue you. Oh, how tempting it is to hold on to that identity like an anchor and fight for it. But this Jesus let go not of his divinity, but of holding on to it and its power and its right and its privilege. It became you and I. Part of the most hated ethnicity, Jews, in the whole world, in the most backwards part of it, where even the Jews mocked him. He didn't grow up into big city. 
grew up rurally. Became a servant, found in the appearance of a man. He humbled himself and was murdered for you and I. Saved us. Closing thought. The church is coming into identity crisis. I'm glad God made me what I am. I love my country. I'm happy to be a man. I don't care. But it does not in the end define me. I have chosen not to grasp my country. Not to grasp it. But yet to allow Christian to define how I vote, how I think, how I fellowship, how I talk, and how I walk. Let's pray. If you need a new revelation of your identity in Christ today, just put your hand up. I'll pray for you. Holy Spirit, move over this great congregation. Lord, I don't know what they face here. Lord, you know I don't study the politics of countries before I come. But Lord, whatever this means to them and whatever they're facing, I pray they would not grasp the identity of their first birth at the expense of the reality of their second birth. Lord, help the South African church. Help the American church to be defined by their second birth. Amen.